0: If you would turn with your Bibles with me to Galatians 3, and I'm going to be looking at verses 23 through 29. And as you're turning to that, I'm going to do a little review of where we are and where we've been these last couple of weeks. We're currently in a preaching series called Back to Basics. So as we sat down several months ago as I came on staff, we decided and we talked with amongst many of you in a vision team and different vision gatherings and meetings, we decided that we were going to make a mission and a vision for what we were going to be as a church. As a people group who gathered together to follow Christ and proclaim him boldly, what were we going to be? What was our mission? What was our goal? What was our driving force as a church? And so we sat down and we had many discussions, and we decided that we were going to be a church and we were going to be a people that knows Jesus and makes him known. So how is that Worked out practically, so we decided that from that foundation, which is the foundation of all churches, what all churches should be, we decided that there's probably four pillars that come from that. You build off of that mission. If we're going to know Jesus and to make them known, what does that mean? What are we about as a church? What are we about as a people? One of those, Pastor Chad preached on several Sundays ago, is that we were going to be biblically saturated, because to fully understand who Jesus is and to make him known— The Bible needs to be the authority in our lives. The Scripture is what gives us the authority, Word of God. The the, uh, Bible says that everything else in this world will pass away, but God's Word will remain forever. And we hold that and we believe that to be true. Last week, Pastor Chad uh, preached a sermon on humility. What it means to be a, a people, a church, a group that practices humility. Walking together humbly before God. This week... I don't know if I drew the short card, but I'm going to be speaking about what it means to walk together in edifying relationships. And I'll talk about what the Bible says about building edifying relationships. And when I say edifying, I mean that mean relationships that are centered on coming toward Christ and allowing that all to flow out to everybody else that we're surrounded by. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And I'm actually going to preach on Our uh, memory verse this week that we've been going through and becoming biblically saturated, our memory verse is in here. So I'm going to walk through Galatians, and then I'll pray, and then I'll, I'll go from there. So I just want to read God's word and let it marinate over us before we pray. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to that promise. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it will last forever. I thank you for Paul's writings to the churches in Galatians, and I thank you that we have the opportunity to have it handheld in front of us, that we can review it and talk about it today. I just ask that you would use your spirit through me as I speak on your word, God. I just ask that You would hold us up in truth. That is the message here that Paul is trying to relate to the Galatians. And I ask that it would benefit us as we go forward in our relationships and how we build them centered on you and how it flows out to others. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I can't really talk about what it means to build relationships without talking about my Father. Now, I talk about my father a lot up here, but that's because he instilled a lot of things in me, but he was the best person I've ever seen at building relationships. I am nowhere close to how he was when it came to just building relationships with people. We would joke when I was in my early 20s and he'd retired, he wanted to spend more time with his kids, and he would just bother us nonstop. And my brother and I, I mean, he was trying to make up for lost time, I get it, but he would bother us nonstop. And my brother and I would joke, Anytime you took him to town, we'd say, are you taking the mayor with you? Because that's kind of how he presented himself. He never ran for political office. He had no interest in that. But you had to factor in. If you took him to the store, it was a 45-minute wait. It was 45 minutes. He could not go from point A to point B across the store without talking to everybody. He was That's just the way he was. In fact, when I brought Kelly home to meet my father, I told her. I said, hey, my father is awesome. But... You, you just got to take him with a grain of salt because he's just kind of that larger-than-life personality. And if, uh, and if she was here this morning, she would laugh because her interaction with him was pretty humorous. He's just that kind of person. I remember specifically one time he would, he would take us to the, uh, the tire shop. That was his thing. Acts of service type of father wanted to provide for his kids. And apparently he did not believe in the tire rating, like 60,000 miles. He didn't believe in that, thought it was a myth. Every year. Tires for winter. That's what he did for his children. But you knew if you took him up on this offer, which you did because it's free tires. Who doesn't take him up on this offer? But you knew if you took him up on this offer, that he was going to just have a lot of fun at the tire shop. So when you go to any tire shop, you'll see that sign that says "Employees Only." Suggestion to him, he would just walk right through it, go talk to the employees, and then him and the uh, the manager there. His name was Gary. They would exchange pleasantries sometimes not so great, <laughs> as older gentlemen would. They loved each other. But he was like, you know, you can't be back here. And he's like, nah, I don't worry about any of that kind of stuff. You just knew that was going to happen. And I remember one time getting in the car with him, and I asked him, I said, why do you do that? Why are you like that? And he looked at me, and he said, hey, I'm going to tell you something, and I'm going I'm to speak some truth and love to you. You're probably not going to be remembered for much. You don't really have a ton of talent that's going to make you famous. So you're not going to be remembered for much. But what you will be remembered for is the relationships you build in the community that God's planted you, and that always stuck. And I was, I was growing at that point. I was in my early twenties, and that stuck with me. And I've lived that way. And I said, you know what? He's right. If I can just build relationships with what God has given me and what God has planted in me, that's how you make a difference. That's how you move forward in with the gospel. And I never questioned him about how he built relationships ever again because it just, it just stuck with me. But I know what you're thinking. There's the skeptic in all of us as we sit here today and say, that's great, I love that story. But have you been around for the last two years? <laughs> Is anybody else like, yes, relationships are great, but building them and maintaining them has been a little rough for the last couple of years, right? Okay? I'm not saying anything that's odd or controversial. It's just the truth. When we talk about COVID-19, we talk about how we were isolated at first and there's a reasonable response to that medical uh, problem that we had, and there was some isolation there, and so it was hard to build relationships. As it continues through, it's still hard to build relationships. It's still hard to maintain relationships. And it's amazing how as humans, in our, in our broken nature, we have the ability to divide over about anything. A medical problem that's a world medical problem, we have managed to divide over it, one way or the other. I know I'm not... You're never usually supposed to do this. But if you talk about politics, it's usually one way or the other. At least that's how people will broadcast it through the media. In fact, it's called the political left and the political right. It's a divide. We will divide amongst anything. Pick a topic. We'll find a way to divide over it because that's what humans tend to do. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's amazing that we can talk about what is human and what is not, and there is a division amongst us on that we can't even define what is human and what is not we're divided on amongst all things it's been tough a lot of times we've had to communicate via online has anybody had a lot of success doing that it's pretty difficult to do that to build and maintain relationships it's a little tough we get in our own way i'm standing up here saying i get in my own way i've been guilty of this myself it's been difficult But if I leave you at that, if I leave you that impression, if I stopped my sermon here, you'd be like, man, what happened to the youth guy? He was a little little depressive this morning, right? There's no hope in this, right? But the truth is, and what I'm about to show you, is that where we divide, God fixes. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about how we interact with each other, does it not? I've heard it many times said that the, the Bible is about God... And don't look at it through man-centered lenses. That's true. It's about God. But it also talks about how we interact with each other. You go to the Ten Commandments, the first two are about how we're to respond to God. What are the other eight? How do we interact with each other? The Bible has a lot to say about how we interact with each other. There's no, when Jesus is approached by the Pharisees and they say, what is the greatest commandment? He says, what? Love God? Love others? The Bible speaks about how we're to interact with each other. And it has a lot to say. But I'm going to do a visual representation here about what it means to be united. If I get it to go forward. Working? Okay. This church is the Church of the Annunciation. It is a massive display that's inside the, uh, the city of Nazareth, which is the boyhood home of Jesus. At the time that Jesus was born, the city of Nazareth, they believe, as they've dug up ref, uh, you know remains of that area... They believe it to be about around 5,000 people. But this church is in Nazareth now, which is a small city of about 100,000. It is the biggest Christian structure in the Middle East. It's an impressive building. To look at it from the outside is to be awed by it. But it's what's inside that is impressive. I have never been inside this church. My teacher has shown me these pictures that I'm taking from him, borrowing from him. But this is on my, I'm going to go here. I want to see this. This is going to be, this is amazing. I'm going to give you a virtual tour of the inside of this building. But to understand what's going on in the inside of this building, you have to know a little bit about this picture. This painting is called the Madonna and Child. It's painted by the Italian artist Raphael. It was painted in 1505. If you Google this, you will find many representations of this particular picture. This is the most famous. What is striking about Jesus in this picture? Very white. Very Western. He's got red hair. He looks more like Joey than he does a Middle Eastern Jew. The reason he looks this way is because Mary looks this way as well. Mary's got blondish hair. There's very little that we know about Jesus' childhood. We know about his interaction in the temple when he's 12. But all of the things that I know or don't know about Jesus' childhood, I know he didn't look like this. Right? He's a Middle Eastern Jew. He does not look like this. But well, what, the, what the church did is they said, we're going to take this painting and we're going to fill it with a bunch of different other paintings, representations of this. And granted, this church was built, keep in mind, in the 1960s. So they commissioned artists to paint pictures. And they said, what I want you to do is I want you to do a replica of this painting, but I want you to do it in your cultural context. How you, how you view this through your cultural lens. Here are some of the pictures. This is Korea. Korea's representation. Now, as you know, South Korea is a mostly majority Buddhist country. It has some minority Christians. If you talk in North Korea, you know under the Communist Party of North Korea, they don't believe in God. They're hostile to Christianity. But here you have a Christian artist who paints a replica of the, the cultural representation of Korea. This is the Greek Orthodox representation. Very colorful. Another European version of this. This is China's representation. I love China's. China's probably my favorite. With all their cultural garb and their, just their flowing uh, you know, colors and their different things, it's just, it's just a wonderful piece to look at. And we also know that China, communist China, is atheist. They're hostile to Christianity. But this artist wanted to paint this. Singapore and Egypt. Egypt is a Middle Eastern country, highly Muslim, has some Orthodox Christianity in it. But Egypt is a similar area to Israel as far as their ethnicity. Singapore's, Singapore's is with the children. I love this picture, love this painting. This is Croatia's, all the colors, another European version of this. Here's a bunch of them like lined up together so you can see the difference. You have Chile, which is obviously a South American country. The middle one's Ethiopia. That's probably my favorite. Fantastic representation of their culture. The one on the, my right, your left, is Guatemala. This is them lined up together. So if you're standing in this church, and you stand in the middle of the church, you can see them lined up like this. And they play the Luke text that, that Mary gets the delivery from, from Gabriel. They play it in all different languages when you go there. It's fascinating. I want to go so bad. This is like on my bucket list. But the point of this is is that there is nothing in human history that unites people like Christ. There is nothing in human history, no religion, no country, no political party, no problem that unites people like Jesus. This is amazing. And if I stand here and look out amongst our local church, we don't have quite the ethnic diversity that these pictures have, but we all are the same way, right? We come with all kinds of different backgrounds. I grew up in the inland northwest. I come with my own culture. Y'all, a lot of you grew up in the Midwest. You come with your own culture. Some of you came from different churches. Some of you came from no churches. Some of you, maybe this is the first time through the door. But what brought us here is Jesus. What brought us here is the gospel. And when I say the gospel, I mean Jesus' death and bodily resurrection for our sins and us being committed to that mission. That unites us. There's nothing in the world that unites like this. So we can look at a very small lens, and we can look at our history, and we can say to ourselves... We have never been this divided. Never in the history we could say that. It would not be true. But we could say that because this is all we see, right? We're inside our own lens. But reality, if you look up and you look out, this is who we are. This is what Christ does. The reason that these pictures are there is because people everywhere in the course of history wanted to know Jesus and make him known through the Spirit working through humans who wanted to be with each other. Missionaries, work of missionaries. I love the Ethiopian picture because you can read in Acts where specifically Philip meets with an Ethiopian eunuch. That's the first moment where Ethiopia would have been introduced to Christianity. So you can actually trace that back to the book of Acts. That's why I think I love that picture so much. Being together, spreading the gospel is what unites us. But again, we like to think of ourselves as being unique. We're in a problem time, which we are. But we like to think of ourselves as being, this is the worst it ever got. This is the most divided we ever got. So now I want to return to the text that Paul writes. And I don't want to just pluck this text out of context. I want to talk about the background in which Paul writes it. If you've ever read the book of Galatians in its entirety, understand that this is probably Paul's first letter that he writes. Paul is writing directly to a church, or a group of churches, actually, that he helped plant. He helped do this so he's got personal relationship with these churches he mean it means something to him he loves this group of churches and so when he writes this letter if you read it i kind of like to joke and say this is what happens when paul writes before coffee you know the joke like don't, don't bother me before coffee because he's fairly direct and fairly angry through the verse through the entire course of the book it's awesome to read Read it all the way through. So I don't want to take this out of context. I want to give some background to it. So Paul is writing to a group of churches in Galatia once he helped plant. There's a problem that's going on there. The main problem that Paul has is that he is trying to fuse, gather together Jews and Gentiles in a worship service. That's a task. That is a troubling task. For one, Jews technically don't really eat with Greeks. So if you want to get together and eat over, over food, they typically don't do that. Why? Because to the Jews, the Greeks' eating habits are so repulsive that they don't want to eat with them. So you got that problem. They don't really want to dine together. But Paul, through the Spirit, has managed to weave these churches together to unite people who, under normal circumstances, would not be united. But Paul now has a problem. He has a group of Jewish leaders coming into those churches after he has left and telling them they have to convert fully to Judaism. To be part of the movement, you've got to fully become Jew. Well, try telling you know, a 20-some-year-old person that they have to be circumcised. They, they reject that. They don't particularly like that. There's a lot of the Jewish culture that the Greeks don't want. So Paul writes to them in this manner. And he specifically talks about this. Now you have to understand the group of churches also, and I'll show up the picture here. It's in modern-day Turkey. Modern-day Turkey was a hub for both the Roman government and Paul's mission. Its land mass is big enough that the Roman government could move east and station troops there and station tr- everything there. And Paul knew- knows this, and so he's like, okay, I'm going to station churches there because I can visit them and then move west. Paul is going against the Roman government. He's fighting against it, basically, with the gospel. And so as he moves through... He knows that if these churches crumble, if these churches give in to another gospel, that he's going to have to go back and he's going to have to start his work all over again. So he's writing this letter to them. And the product of this letter and the thesis and the final point of this letter, his main point, is what he says in the verses that we read. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female. You are all one. You're all one. Now, if you, look at, uh, if you look at our Protestant traditions, there are 40,000, give or take, denominations out there that you can choose from. 40,000. And if you study those 40,000, if you pull them up, I didn't do them all. I'm not going to pretend like I did. But if you do them all, you will find that the majority of them have a statement of faith that is gospel centered. So, what did they divide over? Secondary issues. They couldn't, bre- they couldn't commune together. They broke fellowship because of secondary issues. And Paul is saying, you need to be one. Now, we are, for the most part. We work together with each other. We commune with each other. But that's a lot of division throughout the course of history. That's a lot. But Paul is pulling together to be one. So the direct result of Paul's work is this. In a 30-year period, Paul logged about 10,000 miles. It's A lot of walking, a lot of boat rides, a lot of different things. And in that time, he established a network of ethically diverse house churches. Ethically diverse means Jew, Gentile, all different kinds of ethnicities. And in 313 A.D., the Emperor Constantine issued an edict to Milan, which accepted Christianity. Ten years later, it becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. So Paul's goal is to influence people by relationships with these ethically diverse churches. And it actually happens. The Roman government, which is hostile to Paul, executes Paul. The Roman government eventually, in a couple hundred years, becomes a Christian nation. This is all done because the Spirit led people to gather in the name of Christ and to be together. To know Jesus and to make him known. This was Paul's goal. This is our goal. So, I can talk about Paul and I can talk about unity but the question always remains, how is that done? How is that done? How do we, we unite together? As people who come from different worship backgrounds, different cultures, different areas, how do we unite? Paul says it. We have to give up something of ourselves. We have to give something of ourselves. And how does that happen? This is in the same book I wanted to stay with in Galatians, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. Paul says, I have to die. Christ lives in me. That's how you unite. Jesus came to die for your sins. He was resurrected to to usher in his kingdom. But what he did for us as a people group is he restored what it means to be human. To be fully human, what we were intended to be. How we were designed to be in the book of Genesis. And I'm going to go back to that. My, my youth kids are like, of course he is. Of course he's going to go back to the book of Genesis because I always do. But we were designed to live together and we were designed for a specific purpose. And I'm going to talk about each one. Our design is covered in Genesis one, twenty seven through twenty eight, I'm gonna flip there real quickly. I'll put it up on the screen here. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds and the heavens of every living thing that moves on the earth. So we're gonna talk about two things. The word image is the Hebrew room salem. It means to be cut or carved out. So we use an English phrase now, to be cut from the same cloth. It usually means your children inherited all your great habits. To be cut from the same cloth. That's what that means. You were intended to be cut from God and to carry out his image. That was your design. We all know that we messed that up, right? A couple chapters later... In the Genesis 3, it shows about how we messed this up. And we continue to mess this up today. But Christ restores this. Being in Christ, as Paul says, restores this design. That's how we're designed. So what is our mission then? If we're designed to be in Christ, our mission is to be like Abraham. The other word is likeness, the demuth, to be like, to be like God. But our mission comes from Abraham. We are to go out, Right? He calls Abraham out of his country, and he says, Go forth, and I'm going to redeem the entire world through you. So we're designed to be that way. So what does that look like? What should we be like? Well, I want to do an object lesson, because I'm a youth guy, and so that helps. And some of you may be thinking that you are past an object lesson, but now I've gotten to know most of you, and I know that's not true. So I'm going to use an object lesson. When we are out of Christ, when we are away from Christ, this mirror, I stole it from my son, I think. When we are outside of the relationship of Christ, when we're living outside of our design, this is how we live. We look back at ourselves. We're inwardly focused. And when I look at myself, I see how many gray hairs I have. But aside from that, everything that I do is for me. This is not my design. This is not how God made me. This is how we like to live, right? If we are hurt, or something bothers us, we do this, right? We try to hide ourselves, try to secure it in. We're all about ourselves, right? It's not how we're meant to live. When we are in Christ, when we're doing what we are designed to do, what Genesis says that we are to do, We had to turn that mirror angle and make an angle of it. So if I approach somebody, they can look out and see me, and I can see them. So what that does, what we're designed to be, is I am designed to show God out to the nations. I'm designed as a person filled with the Spirit to reflect God outwardly. Through my relationships with you all, and my relationships with the community. But it also works two ways, Right? I am to go to the community and look at all the hurt and all of the trouble and all the strife and I am to reflect that back to who? God. God knows, but he's designed me to do this work. He's empowered me with the spirit to do this work. This is our design. We are to take the worship to God and God to the people. That's how you're made. We weren't designed to just accept the gift that's been given to us and to tuck it away. It's not our design. Our design is to take the worship back to God and God's message out to the people. And whatever that worship that looks like coming forward. Worship can be singing songs in church, right? Or worship can be heartbreak. When we pray for others, we are doing what we're designed to do. in building relationships with each other. That's living in the story, that's trusting the story. That's living in the promise of God. Are we living like we're designed to? Are we relating to people like we're designed to? Are we loving like we're designed to? As the prayer team or as the worship team comes up, I'm going to ask the prayer team if they would come up in front, those of you who are here. And we're going to play and we're going to sing a song, and I want to ask you this question. Are you living like this? Again, the gray hairs. Are you living like this? Or are we living like we're designed to be? If you are not in Christ, if you do not know Jesus, we have people that are willing to pray for you. I am willing to pray with you. If you've never experienced what it is to be restored to who you were supposed to be as a human, come talk to one of us. Because Jesus died to restore you now to what you were supposed to be as a human and how we relate to others. Now, if we've been hurt in a church or if we've been hurt by society and we've tucked ourselves away, that happens. That happens. But God has designed you to come out. So if you need to talk to somebody about that, have somebody pray with you, we are here for you. Let's relate to each other like we are designed and how God wanted us to be. Ethnically diverse with all of our baggage and all of our trouble, but all of the grace of God.